0: Every feeding, every nappy change, okay, every cuddle, okay, it's all planned, if only the baby knew, okay? And so Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, Can you see, friends, when we read those words, if we can just put ourselves in the place of a child before a parent and just think of these verses, at least to the Israelites, to whom he was written at first, God was saying, was he not, that there's no need for them to be yelling and screaming because he's got their whole life planned down to a T. Can you see that? It's giving the Israelites absolute assurance there's there's not a single thing they have to worry about. So let's look at these together and see how we go from the Jews to whom it was written to us in the 21st century. So look, here's our heading. Um, Our title is, I know the plans I have for you. Our heading is this, God has a personalized plan for the lives of his people. So we see here. God has a personalized plan for the lives of his people. Verse 1 begins, This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's It's a fabulous promise. It's one we all know, but here's the context. Without context, this verse has absolutely no value to us. We can't just willy-nilly take verses of the Bible and apply them. Look, let me give you an example. Judas hung himself, page 25, page 36, go and do likewise. I mean, would you do that? You wouldn't. Well, neither must we just pluck out random verses and think somehow jesus is speaking to you because let me tell you straight he was not speaking to george when he wrote these words he was speaking to what does what does jeremiah say who was he speaking to in what location he's speaking to exiles out of the promised land in destitute and so the question begs begs us what are Jews? to whom was promised what territory? Israel, what are they doing in Babylon? Okay? Why are they there? Have a go. Why are the Jews in Babylon? they because of sin God had warned them? You know when he entered into the covenant with them, he warns them, and Moses recaps. It's before his death, he warns them. Listen to these words. Next slide, please. He goes, look, if you do not obey my covenant, what will he do in verse 36? What will he do to them? Send them into exile. He warns them. It's clear as as, as day, okay? That he warns them that he sent them into exile. And so finally, when he suffered their perpetual rebellion. First of all, in 722 BC, he sent the northern kingdom into exile. Do you know those 10 tribes never returned? They disappeared off the face of the planet. God's judgments can have eternal ramifications. We know that, don't we? The southern kingdom who were slightly more godly They lasted in the land a little longer, but finally in 586, the Babylonians marched into the territory. They took a hold of the Jewish people, removed them from Israel all the way over to Iraq, 900 miles, what's that, 1,500K? There they force-marched them, okay, through harsh desert territory. About 3,000, that's all. The rest of them were either destroyed or the few poor amongst them were left behind to pick up the pieces of a destroyed land, of a destroyed temple. They brought the temple to rubble, okay? The city gates were set alight. The whole place was absolutely destroyed. The few that survived were carried from the city in ruins into slavery, And it's in slavery, in a foreign land, away from Israel, the God, through his prophet, his spokesperson, Jeremiah, sends these words. Verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those, say to all those, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let me ask you, when the Jews heard these words, what? What, what was the message that God was communicating to them? It's in the verse. What was the message that God wanted them to hear in exile? Verse 4. What's the message? Someone have a look at that verse. Yes. That he wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. He was merely an instrument, a tool. He was God. Somebody asked me the other day, could Hitler really have been appointed by God? Oh Yeah. Because Nebuchadnezzar was. And he was appointed not to stroke the Israelites, but to decimate them. Seriously. God is behind it. And God is behind it because, of, as we saw in Deuteronomy, because of their failing to keep the covenant. However, what do you think was going on? False prophets are always prevalent. They are today, just as much as they were then. Okay, False prophets were prevalent. And guess what they were telling the people? Have a guess. What do you think these false prophets were telling the people? That when trouble was brewing, when the Babylonians were, first of all, skirting the the, the city, they were telling them, listen to this, uh, they were telling them that everything was going to be okay. So Jeremiah picks it up, he goes, do not let the prophets and diviners among you Deceive you. First of all, they were telling them they would never go into exile. Everything will be wonderful. The temple of God is here. The city can't possibly fall. God lives there. And yet he did go into exile. And now, verse 8 and 9, they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. So what do you think? First of all, they were telling them exile would never happen. Now in exile, false prophets are telling them that. Have a guess, telling them that? Yeah, it's all an accident. It's all a blip. And you're going to go back to the land tomorrow. Don't worry. It's all a blip on the radar. We don't know quite what's happened. All those prophecies are true. You really shouldn't be here. And just hang on. Tomorrow, you'll be back in the land. Don't worry about a thing. You're God's people. And so the prophets are lying to them. And so it's in this context that Jeremiah writes on behalf of God as the true spokesman of God, okay? There are many people out there who've got something to tell you from God. Be sure they're really teaching you God's word. So Jeremiah speaks in verse 5, and this is his version of how things are. Rather than you're going to leave tomorrow, listen to verse 5, build Houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Marry and have your sons and daughters marry. Find wives for them. What's God saying through Jeremiah? The false prophets are telling them, you're back tomorrow. Don't worry. Don't panic. There's nothing wrong. What's Jeremiah telling them? You're going to be there a long, long time. Settle down. How how long does it take to build a house? They're slaves to build a house. It's going to take decades of of settling in this land and acquiring something. God's word to them, friends, is, is that this is not short. This is not an accident. This is not a blip. This is planned. Exile is going to be a very, very long time. within that time I want you to notice that's the bad news in the very same verses verse 5, verse 6 there's good news tell me the good news the bad news is they're going to be there a long, long time what's the good news? it's in the verses they're going to increase in number there's going to be provision there's going to be some quality of life can you see what God is saying? look, I'm acting in judgment. I ought to have wiped you out, so I've sent you into exile, but because of his covenant, what he promised them, even though it's going to be long, he's going, nevertheless, he's going to look after them. He's going to take care of them. Their sons and daughters will grow up. They won't be killed. They will marry. It's the grace of God in judgment is, look, we we know something of this as parents, you know, when your children are naughty, I don't know, you may send them to the bedroom, but look, you don't shackle them to their bed, do you, normally, do you? Uh, Within that discipline, there's grace, isn't there, you know? Uh, And and so, something of, we we see something in ourselves, or we see in God, within discipline, and judgment, God shows grace in exile. They can settle. They can prosper. They will prosper. They'll have children. They'll like, get educations for them. They'll have careers. They'll get married. They'll have children. But the bad news is this, verse 10. This is what the law says. When 70 years are completed. How many years are they going to be in Babylon? It's a long, long time. Which means that for the first generation at least, what does that mean for them? They're not coming back. That's the sting. Some will never make it back. The ones that do live will have a a certain level of existence, but it's going to be for a very, very long time. They can say goodbye to Israel for a long time. But right in that, Now they've had all the bad news, as it were. Listen to verse 11. Listen to what God is saying. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you future and hope. What's he saying to God, to his people in exile? Who's going to be there a long time? Who's going to be in prison and in enslavement? For 70 years, some will die and never return. But what is he saying to the people as a whole? He loves them, they can trust him. There's a plan still unfolding for their lives. So where does Jeremiah 29, verse 11 belong? It doesn't belong to you, silly. Where does he belong? He belongs to Jewish people exiled out of their land, enslaved in Babylon, imagining that their future is going to be decimated. What do they know happened to the northern tribes? They were were decimated and, and went into oblivion. And God says, but not you, Judah. Not you, Judah. I want you to know Judah. On what basis? Not because there's anything special about them. They were stinkers. On what basis does verse 11 come? It's not on the basis of anyone in the country. What basis does it come? Because of David, he was faithful to the covenant. And they have to remember that. Remember this, Christian. When God was merciful to us and saved us, Sylvia, it wasn't because you were any more special than your neighbor. In fact, you were possibly worse. I mean, I'm not speaking from experience, I'm just hypothetically. Yeah, no mention of all the beer and the whiskey in the fridge, not mentioning any of that. Okay, just all hypothetical. Okay, okay, so look, it's not because they're good, he promises them this blessing and this provision and the plan because of his covenant with David. So, therefore, what is the blessing of 29 verse 11? What are these plans that he knows he's got for them? What are they? Yeah, of what? What kind of hope? What future? What's he talking about? To return to Jerusalem, to rebuild a temple, to know prosperity again. Can you see? He's promising them, not on the basis that they're good, not on the basis that they don't deserve where they are. Oh, they deserve it. They deserve to die in exile. Okay. Get that, get that straight, they deserve to die in exile. Every last one of them. So it's not on the basis of anything they deserve. 29 is on the basis of God's covenantal promise. Based on what he promised David. Based on Abraham. Based on 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 the future of what he's doing in God's God's people, he promises them a future, a plan that's unfolding. Notice something about what this future may look like and why. For I know the plans I have for you. What's that suggesting about God's reign when he's speaking to them? Remember, they're under the superpower. Nebuchadnezzar, as far as they're concerned, is the most powerful person that they've ever encountered. What's God saying in verse 11? For I know the plans I have for you. What's he saying about himself? He knows he can accomplish what he wants to. If God knows he can accomplish what he wants to, what does that say about his position or his rank? It's sovereign. It's all-powerful. It's without challenge. See, the only time Ralph can say, this is how it's going to be, is, is when he's in a scenario that he has absolute control over. Do you see? You can't say that otherwise, for God to be saying, I know the plans I have for you, is speaking something of His omnipotence, of His sovereignty. Psalm 115, God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Why can God do whatever pleases Him? On what basis can He do that? Because, Because He's supreme. There's no one that can withstand Him. Contrary to what we believe, the devil... He's not an equal opponent of God. He's not. He's not an equal. He's someone who's subject to God. He's someone who can never thwart God's purposes. He's someone who can never challenge God's purposes. He's someone who can never overturn God's purposes. He's someone who can never resist God's purposes. It's the first lesson Israel needs to understand that God is sovereign. Secondly, he has a plan, a plan to return them to the land, to give them back their place, their, their nation, their identity, their temple, so that they can worship, so that in due time, someone can be born who will bring about another covenant, which we're going to celebrate at the end of the service. So the promise of Jeremiah 11 that we all know so well is not to us. It's not. We have no right to steal it. It's to Jews in exile because of their poor behavior, who are due to die, should die, but God nevertheless, for the sake of his covenant, promises deliverance based on his sovereignty and omnipotence. That's the basics of that verse. What do we do with it? Because it's not your verse. It's not our verse. We're not the ones in exile. So what do we do with it? Or, well, what is the only thing we can do with it? Okay, let me Look, let me give you an example. If you ever pick olives, if you like olives, I love olives. If you ever pick olives from a tree, have you ever had them straight from the tree? You can't have them, can you? You can't, Ralph. In order to make the olive of any benefit to you, you have to go through months of preparation, okay? To get to, be, to get it to become something of value. Finally, especially at the end of all that, if you add a bit of garlic and chili and coriander, that's fabulous, okay? Really, absolutely. But to get for it to a place where it's of any value to you, you have to put it through numerous processes. Really, it's really hard to get an olive to be of any value uh, uh, in taste. To get this verse of any value to us, what do we have to do with it? I won't embarrass you. Share something. What do we have to do to it? Process it through what lenses and mechanisms? Through Jesus. Simple. So, look, if you ever are wondering of an answer to any question I ask, if you say Jesus, you can almost guarantee 99.999% of the time you're right because the answer is always Jesus. Seriously, the only way that we can handle this verse and do anything with it, keep it on our mantelpiece, otherwise you have to go home and throw it away. Okay, the only way you can keep it is you have to reread that text through the lens of Jesus. And by that, we mean everything that Jesus taught. By that, we mean the new covenant that Jesus inaugurates. What place does that verse... Remember, that verse is in which covenant? And you're not in that covenant. So why have you got the the text on your mantelpiece? You see, you're not in that covenant. The only way that we can do anything with it, it has to be filtered through and read through the lens of Jesus and his new covenant. And his new covenant is summed up or detailed in every word in this part of the Bible. And so we have to look at the verse through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of what Jesus teaches, and through the lens of what his apostles teach. And therefore, let me take you, let me take you to the New Testament. First of all, let's look at the God of the New Testament. So we've gone from Old Testament to New Testament. What has happened to God in the Old Testament? How much of God did the Jews know? And how did they know him? In what form did they know him? as george as an as a distant deity, as someone who stood afar off, how close could you get to that God if you went anywhere near him you'd burn. Do you see? So now as we come into the new covenant, first of all, we have to understand what this God looks like now. Now in the new covenant, we hear these incredible words from Jesus to Philip. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Show us God, because our fathers never knew him. He was always distant. He was always alien. He was always afar off. Show us God. And he says to them these words, Philip, don't you know me, even though I've been with you all this time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What's the new covenant doing with God, that alienated, distant, aloof being? What's it doing with Him? He's bringing Him near, personalizing Him. How close could the disciples? Did the disciples get to God? They touched Him. Have you ever wondered at the significance of that? They touched him, they felt him, they held him, they saw him, they experienced him. It's revolutionary. God came amongst them, became one of them, and was seen and felt by them. So the first thing we have to understand when we're reading this verse from the New Testament is that the God who speaks it is Jesus. Is someone who's close, personal, clothed in flesh, someone we can know and feel and experience and associate with. He is the God of Jeremiah 29:11, fully disclosed to us now. Remember, in the Old Testament, God is always enclosed, <laughs> shrouded in mystery. Now in Jesus, he's disclosed. In these last days, Hebrews 1. God has spoken to us in His Son, who is the exact representation of His person. Jesus is everything that we see in God, His very person. So That's the first thing. The second thing, we have to ask ourselves, does anywhere in the New Covenant, does Jesus, through His apostles, does He ever speak a word such as Jeremiah 29, 11? Is there any reason why this verse... Has any relevance in the new covenant? And then you read these two verses, which are almost the New Testament equivalents of that verse. First of all, Philippians 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Can you see? That is the New Testament equivalent, the closest we've got. And Romans 8:29, 28, the, the parallel verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. Both of those texts were written to the church in what condition? in persecution, in difficulty, in exile, okay? Okay, so that the closest New Testament text we have to the old covenant promise. And what I'm suggesting to you, friends, that the best you can do with Jeremiah 29, is to shroud it in these verses. Without doing that, you don't have any reason to use the promise. It's not to you. But so long as you can filter it through the lens of these two texts, and what you, you realize is it's a, it's a very similar promise. God is similarly promising that what He began, He will complete, that He controls all things, even bad circumstances, and He turns even bad circumstances round. And again, like Jeremiah 20, 11, those promises are anchored in what? The old one was anchored in the covenant with David. These are anchored in the covenant with Jesus, his covenant to save you, who began a good work and you will be completed. His covenant to do you good. And his covenant, just like the first one, the first one was the covenant to give them the land. The second one, the good work that he's began and the good purposes he's called them to, is to give them what in the future? A land. A land. Heaven is a land. It's not floating in clouds. It's land. It's this physical earth restored, renewed, uh, renovated. And so those verses encapsulate that. I want to suggest, friends, it's the closest we have to Jeremiah 29.11. And therefore, if you're ever going to focus on 29.11 as being a word that God speaks to us, it has to be through the lens of these two texts, which really develop the 29-11 promise. God's word to us then is this. Our present experience is a form of discipline. What do I mean by that? This is how it marries up to Jeremiah Gen- Gen- 29-11. Our present reality is an expression of discipline. What do I mean by that? Have a think about what I'm saying. I have a say. Speak up if you like. Our present experience is a form of discipline. In what sense? Anybody want to have a go? We're not in heaven, no? So in what way is it discipline? There's two ways. One is, okay, what's the obvious way our experience now is in discipline? We're suffering because? Sin, we suffer because of the sins of people out there, don't we? And we also suffer God's discipline for sins. In there, I know none of us ever like to think it, because we think God's like a big cuddly teddy bear, but he's not, you know. And much of our regular Christian experience—much is a strong word—some of our regular Christian experience is the discipline of God for the way we're conducting ourselves. Hebrews 12, I think, is is it up next there? Uh, Just after the illustration, would you jump past the illustration? Hebrews 12, thank you. Look, the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes everyone who accepts as a son. That means, if I am living consistently wayward in how I'm conducting myself as a Christian, God is putting me through what? as a consequence of that, He promises it. He's putting me through this. Some of my daily things that I face in my life are a consequence of discipline of sin, whether present ongoing sin or gross, terrible sins of the past through which I'm still reaping the ramifications today. Let me give you one. If I murdered somebody 20 years ago, what would I still be feeling and experiencing today? Yeah, I'd probably still be in a prison cell, okay? Okay. You know, that's without whatever discipline God puts me under personally. So one form of discipline that we experience as Christians, we all face it, and we may be in it right now, is that God disciplines us for sin, like He disciplined Israel. But there's a more general form of discipline. I want to show you what that is. We've got Hebrews 12. Look at Romans 5. Romans 5, and it's also in 1 Peter 5. Romans 5, we, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, and character, and character hope. It, what it's saying to us there, friends, is there's, there's a form of discipline that's not related directly to our sin. Let me take you to, would you turn with me to 1 Peter 4? 1 Peter 4, if you've got a Bible. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange is happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in Christ's suffering. And then he goes on to say, for if you're insulted, verse verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who don't obey the gospel there's, there's two forms of discipline at work in the church's life. One is one as a direct result of my sin. The other, there's three. The other is as a direct result of someone else's sin. Okay? But the third is, is God's discipline isn't always necessarily attached to sin. His discipline is something positive that He puts all Christians through. I think that's what Peter is talking about. That's what Romans 5 is talking about. That God is regardless of whether or not we've done anything wrong, regardless of not whether or not we're perpetually sinning, he just puts us through suffering because suffering has a chain reaction to events that finally produces the hope of Jesus returning and going to heaven. And so in one sense, Christian, we are living in a discipline because God chooses to put us through hardship by choice, sometimes because of terrible people out there, sometimes because of We're terrible in our walk, but most often, and 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 I'm using that correctly this time, most often, because he chooses to put us through terrible circumstances. Because terrible circumstances do what for us? It produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope in Jesus Christian. This is why we don't preach prosperity. If you came this morning looking for prosperity, you're in the wrong church. It's why not everybody gets healed here. It's why when we pray for people, we aren't commanding healing because not everybody's going to get healed because God has put you deliberately into suffering so that you get hope. If I heal you, you won't get hope. Do you get it? Okay? If I deliver you, you won't get the product. It's a cheap escape. Christian, we're designed, our lives are designed to be in in suffering. Christian, the reason you're struggling today is because God has called you to suffer. It's your calling because He's producing hope and character and perseverance through you. That's the first point that Jeremiah 29 relates to us in that we too are in discipline. And so what is God's word to us in discipline? Verse 5 of Jeremiah 29, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat the fruit. How do you translate that into New Testament life of the Christian? What is God saying to us in our troubles? Next time we're ill, next time we've got something that we can't, feel we can't cope with, next time we've got a, a problem that we want deliverance from, what is God actually saying to us? the thing we don't want to hear. You're going to have it. Let me say this with the utmost soberness, sobriety. Some of you will die of cancer. Some of you will have your houses robbed. Some of you will be beaten up by a thug. Some of you will get have an unimaginable amount of bad luck in your life. And the word isn't to you, I'll come here for a quick deliverance prayer and you'll go away fine, Johnny. It's not what we do here after the service. The word to you is, settle down. Build houses. Plant gardens because this situation isn't going to change. Don Carson tells of a story when there was a person in their church who had been diagnosed with cancer and it's a church prayer meeting and the whole church is pouring under God to deliver this person from cancer. And his wife gets up and prays, God, please help Jack face the onslaught of cancer and please help him die well. The whole prayer meeting turned to her in anger. Why did she pray for deliverance? Doesn't she care? Jack died. And he died well. In faith. Friends, God's word. You love Jeremiah 29, don't we? Do you know what Jeremiah 29 is saying to us? Sometimes we have to accept God's Providences, however dark they are. It's not meaning we don't pray for people to be healed, but I have no right, George, to command your healing. Who the heck am I? Like I'm God? Like God does something and I just undo it because I'm like super powerful? No. It means when I pray for you, if you come for prayer at the end of a service and you've got some illness, it means I ask Jesus to relieve you of that burden. But if he won't, I ask that he'll give you grace to carry it. That's how we pray for people. That's how we minister for people. That's what Jeremiah 11, 29, 11 is telling us, uh, that that we're to build houses and settle down. We're not going to get out of this necessarily tomorrow. And the more we fight, the more we're desperate, we're going to get out of this. We're going to pray and fast and have deliverance. And we're going to go to every preacher I can think of. I get phone calls. Look, I've been to 10 churches, and they've been praying for me. It's not working. Can you come and pray for me? I say, no. I do. I say, no, I won't. But if you want God's help, just come to church every week and live the Christian life. I can't deliver you, Christian. Nobody can. Sometimes we just have to accept what God is doing in our lives. And by his grace, there are times he does heal cancer. And there are times he heals cripples. But that's an eschatological reality for which I have no right to demand today. But my hope that God does it for us. So here's what we do. Here's how we build houses. My time is up. Okay, I've got exactly three minutes. So I'm going to race through this. If I go over three minutes, you tell me. First of all, A, here's a New Testament uh, response. Be content in your present hardships. What did Paul say? You know, Paul came close to death several times. I've never heard him trying to deliver himself from death, ever, and claim Jesus' promises. You know what he says? What I've learned, Paul, that when I'm desperate, I just pray and pray, keep praying until I get delivered. No! What did he say? I've learned to accept being stoned to death. I've learned to be in prison continually. I've learned to watch my friends die. He nearly watched Epaphroditus die. Okay? He left others, his companions, ill so he could come do missionary work. Why? Because he learned that God's providences are designed and good for us. He goes, look, I've learned to be content. Christian, can I ask you, have you learned to be Content. Instead of always expecting that God's going to just step in there and buy you out of the next trouble you're in. Next thing, know that he cares for you. The reason you can be content, 1 Peter 5, because we can cast our cares on him, our anxieties on him, because he cares. That means if I'm facing a terrible load today, it's not because he doesn't care. It's because he cares. I'm facing it. Does that make sense? I'm in mean it because it's good for me. The next one is humble. humbly bring your petitions to God. Look, do not be anxious, but bring and present your offerings to God, which means, okay, we can ask for healing. We, can't, we can ask for deliverance. We can ask, but the humility here is, is that we bring them before God and we present them, and then what do we do with them? We leave them. We don't take him by the scruff of the neck and command him, you will heal me, God, today. We don't do that, do we? We present our request. God, would you heal Tony? And we leave it with him. The next one is, we remember that he knows our need before we've asked him. Remember the baby? Matthew 6, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. We spend so much of our time trying to explain to God our need like he's some kind of dummy. Hello? He's omniscient. What does that mean? Is that the right one? Yes, yes it is. That means he knows everything you want in. He knows it. That doesn't stop us explaining things. He just does us good. But you don't have to spend countless hours. You don't have to thump around, race around, and shout at him. Like, he doesn't know what I mean. God really doesn't know. If he knew, if God knew the trouble I was in, he would help me right now. He doesn't know. He does know. He knows everything you need. He knows every meal, every salary income. He knows everything you need. You don't have to command him to do you good. He's doing it. It's just not in the way that you'd assume. And the last one, believe in him. I don't just mean believe that he exists. I mean, believe in him. We, we say to some, so someone who says, I'm going to do something, you know, wish me well. And said, say, look, I believe in you. That doesn't mean you objectively believe they're real, does it? That means what? It means that you Believe in their ability to do that thing. Believe in Jesus. That means believe He can do whatever good that you need. Believe in Him. And I'll finish. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And that for the Christian friends means I know that he who began a good work in me will complete it. And it means that in all things God is working for my good. In cancer, in bereavement, in illness, in loss, in ongoing perpetual suffering, God is working for my good because of his covenant with me. Amen.